The scripture for today's sermon is from John chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. This is God's word. Thank you, Katie. We're looking since Christmas at what Jesus had to say about himself. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. The Christian church, people outside the church, every one of you, historians and theologians down through the centuries. Who is he? Was he a prophet? Was he just a teacher? Was he an example? Was he a leader of a rebellion? Everything has been proposed. Everything has been speculated upon. But what did Jesus actually say about who he is? That's what we've been looking at since uh, the new year. And um, we've looked at how Jesus has claimed that he is the great I Am, the name of God, Yahweh that he is the one that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus' claim that he is the bread of life, just as God fed the Israelites on their journey to the promised land with manna from heaven, so too Jesus is the divine food of God. Here we have perhaps Jesus' most famous claim about himself. In fact, uh, it's not just in one place, The whole Gospel of John is all about Jesus coming into the world as light into darkness. And it's no accident. That's the way the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. In the beginning, when there was no order, when there was just primordial chaos, the light of God illuminated his creation and drove out all the darkness. Light is God's good presence in God's good creation. Light is the way it's meant to be. And it's the same with the beginning of John's Gospel, the Gospel of Light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, 
and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John's Gospel in the New Testament echoes the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, but takes it a step further. Claims that the light is not just some metaphor or abstraction, but the light represents a person, Jesus Christ. Second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through him, everything that is was made. And in him is life, and that life is the light of man. The opposite of light is darkness, is death. Jesus is light, Jesus is life. The opposite of that is darkness, chaos, death, and destruction. But what does that mean? What does it actually look like when that light, that second person of the Trinity, God, descends into this dark world, becomes one of us? What does it look like when the light shows up? How does the light reveal the world? How does the light interact with people? Well, I chose this passage because it's a famous story but it also shows the way that Jesus, the way that the light of God interacts with the darkness of this broken world. It shows us what happens when the light shows up. So this is a story where the leaders of Israel, famously self-righteous, believers in the law, doing the right thing, condemning and punishing wrongdoing, they discover a woman who has been uh, caught in adultery. She was probably some kind of prostitute. And they're going to stone her, because that's what the law says. And so Jesus has been traveling around Israel, and they want to know, well, what does Jesus think? If he's for the law, if he is a representative of God, then he will obey the law. He will agree with us punishing this woman by stoning her to death. And so they bring him to this woman. She's standing there all alone, surrounded by a group of men, just as the law requires, all with rocks to throw at her. A brutal way to die. And what does he do? Does he condemn them? Does he turn away and ignore the law? Does he pick up a rock to participate in the just punishment of sin? What he does is speak. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This is the woman who's been caught in adultery. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. The older ones know. They've been around. They know what life is like. Until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me 
will never walk in darkness, but will have the life of life. What does Jesus reveal? What does his light reveal in this encounter? Well, notice he has not given up on the condemning sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. He's not just anything goes. But what he is doing is contrasting the difference between Jesus Christ as the Lord of life and the law, which is really the law of death. What do I mean by that? The law says no. If you read the law in the Bible, it is always negative. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. You don't covet. You don't murder. The law is entirely negative because the law is not designed to show you how to live. The law is showing you where dangers and problems in life are. It's like a military map of of enemy territory. And it says, here are the minefields. Don't go here, because if you step on a mine, you're going to get blown up. It's entirely negative. If you go around sleeping with the wives or the husbands of other people, you and your life is going to blow up, and your community is going to blow up. If you murder people, if you cheat, if you lie, if you steal, that's how people's lives blow up. That's why there are people in jail. Lives ruined. The law is entirely negative because what it does is point out where the problems are. God is not some policeman standing up in heaven waiting for people to do wrong so he can condemn them. The Bible says God created us purely out of freedom, grace, and love. And he wants us to live that way. And like any good parent, he's warning his children where the problems are. If you avoid these things, the chances are you are going to have a much happier life. You're going to be more fruitful. Now, the Lord doesn't tell you how to be fruitful, doesn't tell you what to do. All it does is tell you where you should not go, where the problems are. The fact is, God did not create us as robots and give us a set of rules to live by. I'll say it again. The law is entirely negative. Don't do this. However, you are free to do everything else. Because we were created to live in freedom. It is remarkable how little the Bible has to say about how to live. It doesn't tell you how to cut your hair. It doesn't tell you what clothes to wear. It doesn't tell you who to marry. It doesn't tell you what kind of job to have. It doesn't tell you what kind of building you should live in. It doesn't tell you how you should spend your time, apart from one day a week where you worship God. 
It doesn't tell you how to be happy. That's your job. There is so much that we'd like God to tell us, but the law is not there for that purpose. That purpose is covered by Christ. He is the Lord of life. Unlike the law, which is entirely negative, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, follow me. Let me show you how to live free. I am the light of life, abundant life. So you can see now the relationship between Jesus and the law. The law says, thou shalt not, and points to the dangers and the problems, the landmines. Jesus and his light don't show up like a light in an interrogation cell to find the guilty. Rather, he shows up to show the way. To show what life based on grace looks like. To show you that God truly does love us. To illuminate and provide us with a way forward. I'd like to read to you a second passage. This is uh, John 9. Do we have that? This is another time where Jesus talks about himself as the light. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Shalom, which means scent. So the, mud, the, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Notice the question, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Israel was a land of the law, the law of God, the law given to Moses in Mount Sinai. It defined, in many ways, the culture, which was a problem. Jesus came to correct that problem, by the way. But it, it evoked this mindset. If somebody has a problem, somebody is responsible for that problem. If he's blind, he must have been bad. You know, the Pharisees believed that if they followed the law, they did the right thing, that by itself meant that nothing bad would happen to them. So the disciples are thinking the same thing. Who's to blame? Who can we point the finger at? Who can we condemn for this terrible, terrible blight? I mean, not to have sight in the, that uh, time would have been an awful thing. It's always an awful thing, but back then, you wouldn't have been able to do anything at all. Who is to blame, Jesus? And notice what he says. 
Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. The world is broken, and it is quite possible in a broken world for any of us to suffer. We all are susceptible to disease and injury. We're all susceptible no matter how good we are as an employee to getting fired. We're all susceptible to broken relationships. We're all susceptible for the brokenness of the world to take away our happiness. It is a dark, unhappy, broken world that we live in. Happiness is fleeting. Health is fleeting. And it is quite possible to do the right thing your whole life and still suffer. Sin is a universal condition of this world. Sin is the darkness within God's good creation. So what to do? If you have the light of life in you, your job is to help people who are suffering, not going around judging and condemning, but to help those that are suffering. It's striking, by the way, to me, I don't know if you uh, remember that the, uh, the latest pope, when asked about homosexuality, he said famously, who am I to judge? He was exemplifying exactly what Jesus said. His job was to have a relationship and witness God's love, not to go around finding people to condemn and judge. Sin is universal. There is sin in our lives. There is sin in my life. If we spend our time going around looking for sin to condemn, our task will be endless, and the recriminations and the toxin, the destruction of relationships, will blow apart anything we try to do. Jesus did not come into the world to do that. He came into the world to heal, to restore to make that which is broken whole again. By the way, there's something in this passage that uh, it's easy to skip over. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Can you hear what that is saying? It is possible that your suffering, things that are happening to you, can have a positive purpose. Are you suffering right now? Are your dreams broken? Is the plan for you that you had for your life, has it run off its rails? Your career, your body, your relationships, other things in your life that don't seem right to you. It's possible that God put them there for a good purpose. Now, how could that be true? How could a good God allow that to happen? And how can a bad thing become a good thing? Well, you know, recently we had a memorial service for a member of our congregation, Dave Warner. And uh, 
I don't know how many of you knew him, but Dave was here before I came to Hoboken, before the founding of this church. And he was a stalwart and has been a stalwart member of our church. And he died recently. We did the memorial service uh, last Sunday, uh, last Saturday. Now Dave was a Christian, but he did some terrible things, and he went through some terrible things. And by the way, he was the first one to talk about them and confess them because they became the basis of his Christian life. Things that most people would have run away from or hid themselves from or destroyed themselves with drugs and alcohol to forget. But Dave never turned away from the things that he had done and he had been through. He made them the basis of his relationship with Christ. And by sharing his darkness, he revealed the beauty of Christ's grace in his life. He counseled hundreds of people throughout his life. His home was an open home. He never turned anybody away. And at the memorial, the, um, the church was filled with people, mainly men. And as they gave their testimony, they said again and again, the thing about Dave was... He never condemned. He welcomed everybody. He never judged. He never listened. He only listened. And if he did talk, he didn't talk about people's sin. He talked about his own sin. And how, about how God's grace had set him free. And how God revealed his beauty in Dave's personal darkness. And he did it his whole life. And we passed around a microphone. And then again and again, people stood up and said what his ministry, his revelation of God's grace had meant to them, his lack of condemnation. He's pointing towards Christ rather than himself. Particularly poignant, at the back, right at the end, there were these two gentlemen, one after the other. From the way they dressed, they, they came from very different backgrounds. They stood up one after the other, and both of them said, that their families would not exist if it wasn't for Dave Warner's ministry to them in their darkest moments. That the happiness of their families and their wives, their children, the thriving of their life was due to the fact that Dave Warner didn't condemn them. He listened to them. He pointed them to Jesus. He showed them the way to address the darkness in their life. I think that is what Jesus is inviting us all to do. Not to run away, not to be ashamed, but to trust in his grace enough to get close to the light. And yes, it will reveal us. But it also shows us the way home. It shows us the way through the darkness. So how does Jesus deal with our darkness? Well, John 3.16, probably the most famous verses in the Bible, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm sure most of you have heard those verses. You've seen the numbers held up at football games everywhere. And what is it saying? God loves us. He shows that love by giving his Son 
who died on the cross to pay for our sin. But how did that work? Right before John 3.16 is John 3.14 and 15. And it explains it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him have eternal life in him. And you read that and you think, what? The snake in the wilderness? What is it talking about? What does a snake have to do with Jesus? What does a snake have to do with the cross? And I don't know how you read those words, but I remember when I first read them, it was just, I skipped over them. It was just the Bible being weird and strange. It was another example of how the Bible needs something to hold your hand to read it. But what if the Bible is not weird and strange? What if it is telling us a straightforward, consistent story Old Testament to New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. If you have enough faith to believe that, if you have enough trust to read the Bible, then this story unlocks the whole cross and the reason that Jesus went to it. By the way, my experience has been, I've been a Christian now since uh, the age of 30, so 20-some years a preacher for 10 years. One thing I've learned is the best things for me to preach on are the weird things. Because invariably, and I would say that, invariably, something that I looked at and thought, that is just strange and weird. How can I possibly talk about that? As I have read it, as I have prayed and asked God to reveal its meaning to me, as I have read commentaries, invariably, the weirdness is where the gospel gets unlocked. It shows how the whole story is coherent. It reveals the things that you need faith to see. Because only people with faith will go back and read weird things like this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What is that talking about? Well, it's a reference to the Old Testament actually to the book of Numbers. And the first five books of the Old Testament tell the story of how God created the world in Genesis, how darkness entered the world through the snake in the garden, and how God begins the process of redeeming the world, starting with Abraham and the creation of the nation of Israel that he rescues from slavery in Egypt, and brings to Mount Sinai and then takes through the desert to the Promised Land. And I mentioned last week, that story, that journey, is a picture of the salvation of every one of us. And that's why it's worth reading. The stages, being freed from bondage and slavery, passing through the water of the Red Sea, baptism, learning directly from God how to live, being guided on the journey through the desert, being fed by the manna. It's all there. But in Numbers, you have this strange moment where the people are rebelling against God. They don't trust him anymore. They're fed up of the manna. They're fed up of being in the desert. 
They even say we'd rather go back to slavery. At least we knew where we were back then. And God, in response, sends these snakes amongst them. Remember, the snake is, first shows up in the story in the garden. The snake is the darkness that entered into God's good creation. And then this happens. This is Numbers 21. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who was bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Have you noticed, by the way, it seems to be in every country, so often on the side of an ambulance or the side of a hospital, there'll be a symbol, a bronze pole, a snake wrapped around it. It's a reference to the story. So what is it talking about? When did darkness enter God's good creation? Through the snake. It was the serpent's poison. The toxic lie that you can't trust God. That you need to take from this world what you want, because if you wait for God to give it to you, it'll never happen. The lie that it is better to live according to our will than according to God's will. That's the poison. That's the toxin. That's the source of the darkness. So what does God say? The snake needs to be killed. The snake needs to be lifted up. It's poison revealed. So that when you have the poison in you, the toxin in you, and you look to the snake, that toxin is put to death as the snake is put to death. So what's the gospel? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes the snake. And when he is lifted up, he draws into himself all the toxins, all the poison, all the darkness in our life. And it is put to death with him. God does it. So that we can begin to flourish. Live not according to the law, but according to the gospel of grace. Flourishing in a good world illuminated by Christ, guided by him 
shown away by him. When he says, let there be light, he's showing the way things are meant to be. No darkness, no toxins, no rebellion, no dissent. Just a created people doing the will of their God, united at peace together. Glenn told us about it today when we offered the peace to each other. Why can we offer peace? Because all the discord, the toxin of rebellion, all the darkness of sin has been drawn out and placed on Christ so that we are free to live, so that we can be at peace, so our lives, our lives can be fruitful. In a moment, we're going to go to the table and receive that manna, Christ's body. And as we approach the table, we're going to confess. So, I've been speaking a lot. Maybe much of it has gone over your head or you've been thinking about other things. But for this moment, wake up. Because potentially, you can be part of a miraculous transaction. As you come to God's table, as you are offered the body and blood of Christ lifted up, you are offered the opportunity to confess, to let go of everything in your life that is toxic, everything that is based on rebellion against God, everything that is unholy, everything that is dark. And Christ will take it onto himself. He will draw it out of you and put it to death. All we have to do is look to him in faith. All you have to do today, this morning, is to believe what I've just told you. To confess truly. Perhaps things that you've never confessed before. And invite Christ to illuminate your life. That's the gospel. We're going to do it in action right now. I encourage you to join in. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that through Christ you draw the toxins and poisons, the darkness, out of our lives. That you give us the chance to live life fruitfully. That you give us the chance to turn what is dark into something good and beautiful to witness to the world. That you give us a new beginning so that we're defined not by our pasts and what we were, but by our future and what we are becoming in you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.